0: Well, once again, it's my privilege to have evangelist Paul Swanky come up and open up the Word of God. You know, there's something about people who love the Word of God that you just love to be around them. You just wait just long enough, and the Word of God's sure enough to be brought up and talking about Jesus. And I'm thankful for that relationship that I have with Brother Swanky that we could be sitting and talking. And eventually, we're going to start talking more about the Bible and talking about how good Lord is, and that's encouraging. We all know those people that are. Have the rain clouds following them. That inside of the building it just seems like there's a darkness around them. And it's kind of like those cartoons. They take a step over here and the cloud follows them. And they step over here and they just can't avoid it. And you almost looking at some people and say, what's good about your life? Name me something good. Find something. Because God is always good. Well, I'm just so thankful for the encouragement. Just to spend time with my friend. And uh, talk about the Bible. And just have a wonderful time with him. And to be able to share him with you. And that as he opens up the word of God that you're looking forward to the same thing. I want to hear more of God's word. So preacher, come up and open up God's word for us, sir. Bless you. Amen. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Pastor. Let me invite you to take your Bible tonight to the book of Luke in chapter number five. The book of Luke, chapter five, and I'd like to begin reading from Luke five and verse number five. And as you're turning there, I'd certainly just like to say thank you so much to Riverview Baptist Church. And it's just a privilege, as always, to be here. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your labor for the Lord. Thank you for being so gracious and kind to me in these days. I mentioned last night. I appreciate so much the accommodation. Thank you for laboring and working and giving towards that. And And uh, I'm just excited about what the Lord is doing. And I want to encourage you tonight, just stay faithful. Uh, Keep giving, keep going, keep serving. You know, in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. I think if we watch the news today, we're reminded it's not due season yet. Uh, we'll get there, but it's not there yet. So let's just stay faithful and let's keep serving the Lord. And and uh, when the trumpet sounds and we gather on the other side, we want to go to heaven having been found faithful in the service of our God. And I, I, I we can do this. And I trust and pray that that uh, God will give you that heart to join Brother Bockhaus and, and say, let's step out by faith and attempt great things for God. God bless you as you serve him. Thank you again for being uh, so kind and gracious to me in these days. You have your Bible to the book of Luke in chapter number five. It was a few months earlier where Andrew did what Andrew does. He brought his brother Peter to the Lord. It really is an amazing story. You read about it in John chapter one as the crow flies. Oh, 20, 25, 30 miles depends what crow flies, I guess. Problem with crows is we humans don't fly like crows, do we? But you know, it'd be a long journey. You could do it in a day if you really worked at it. But Maya was certainly a worthwhile journey for Peter. And crusty old fisherman, he left the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and he made his way across the Jordan River to what today would be the land of Jordan. And that's where Peter met his Savior. You can hear Andrew's excited words say to his brother, we have found the Messiah, which be, is being interpreted the Christ Peter met the Savior, and his life would never be the same. Well, born into the family of God, Peter returns back to that little village called Bethsaida on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and and he goes back to his fishing business. If you have the idea that Peter the fisherman would kind of stick a rowboat in the sea in, in, of Galilee and and stick a pole into what well, you got, the wrong idea. What we have here is a very very large fishing business. I mean, they're reasons to believe from Luke chapter five that Peter was doing extremely well, a family business, no doubt, and why Peter's got a a real good thing going. And and you know you're saved, but you still gotta pay a mortgage. You're saved, you still gotta put food on the table. You're saved, you still have to put clothes on the back. and, And so Peter goes home back across the Jordan River. He makes his way to Bethsaida back to do his business. And it was a few months later where this time, it is not the story of Peter going to Christ, jesus comes to peter and why that morning by the sea of galilee peter is going to have an appointment with the son of god and his life would never be the same it goes down like this in luke chapter five verse number five where simon of course another name for peter simon answering said unto him master we have toiled all the night Then in verse number 8, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It was the day where Peter's life would never be the same. Jesus goes from being his master to being his Lord. From master to Lord. Father, help us now as we open the Bible. May your words convict us. May your words change us and challenge us. And Lord, I pray that tonight we would not be the same as so many years ago you dealt with Peter by that shore. I pray that now tonight in this place you would deal with your people. Father, as the word of God goes forward, may our hearts say yes to the spirit of God and yes to the leadership of the Savior. For someone tonight who's not saved, what a grand night to call on the name of the Lord and be born into the family of God. So tonight, we ask you to do a mighty work as we commit the preaching into your hands. In Jesus' great name I pray. Amen. In verse number one, the Bible says it came to pass as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God. Well, there's the multitude all through the book of Luke. It's something to trace the mighty crowds that follow Christ. In one occasion, the Bible tells us how they're tripping over each other. This time, the Bible says they're shoving one another. They're pressing upon him to hear the word of God. And it really is an impressive statement, isn't it? That statement in verse number one, the multitudes have come to hear the word of God. Well, you talk about a loaded statement, that would certainly be one. Obviously, when Jesus would stand by the sea of Galilee, or in this case, sit in a boat, every time he preaches, he is going to preach the word of God. And yet it is not just that Jesus speaks the words of God, Jesus is the word of God. It is one of the great names of the Son of God, the word of God. So when the Bible tells us they came to hear the word of God, I guess you could technically say they came to hear the word of God from the word of God what a morning that must have been and as they gather on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee it really is the perfect outdoor theater you know the Lord didn't have the blessings that we have today of a microphone that really helps and and speakers and a PA system and an internet and the rest of it well in the day a speaker that was addressing a mass of people oftentimes they would pull out a little bit from the water and I've read that the water can carry voice some up, up to seven times better so if you pull away from the shore a bit and the crowd sits along the shore of course the slope makes a perfect theater setting well Jesus had his microphone that he had created years earlier now he's got his perfect auditorium that he had created years earlier what else do you need so the Bible tells us that Jesus gathers the people that day by the lake of Gennesaret the lake of Gennesaret is also known as the Sea of Galilee it is also called the Sea of Tiberias for the reasons but the crowd came and they gathered that day in verse number two the word of God they says they saw two ships standing by the lake but the fishermen were gone out of them and notice they were washing their nets The word nets is plural. So for the first time we get an indication that Peter's business is quite the business. In the day it was called a system of trammel nets. There were two boats that would go in tandem through the waters of the Sea of Galilee. The first net would stretch across the top of the water and be held up by floats. It would connect those two ships. Underneath the water another net would be weighted down well below the water line and a third net would connect the top net and the bottom net. So As the ships would make their way through the Sea of Galilee, the the catch they would get would be an immense catch on most nights. And I suppose, well, and I guess that's the reason they're washing their nets, is because you wouldn't just catch fish, you'd catch a lot of other undesirable things. So the morning would come, and when a night's worth of fishing was done, the fishing business would come to the shore, dock the boats, and now it was time to wash those massive nets. And why you can be certain on this particular morning, the fish are in an awfully bad mood. Now, look, I'm not a fisherman. It doesn't sound like a good day to me to get eaten up by mosquitoes and sit on a lake. I do, however, recognize that to some people that sounds like a really good day. And and be it a good day or a bad day, well, these people, this is how they put food on the table. This is how they paid the mortgage. They'd take the fish every day and they'd be carried down to the city of Jerusalem through that northern gate where it'd be sold at the market. And, you know, for fishermen to go out and fish all night long, I don't know much about fishermen. I don't know much about fishing. But what I do know is if you fish all night and you don't catch anything in the morning, it's what you call bad mood. And you can be certain these professional fishermen who know the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hands, they have fished all night. They haven't caught a thing. I'm quite certain as they're washing their nets, trying to go home and get some rest, that there's a lot of grumbling. There's a lot of complaining. Well, I'll promise you they weren't happy customers. But the The Bible tells us in verse number 3 that Jesus entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's. So now Simon is going to let Jesus use his boat. It was a few years ago, and not many now, they they found in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee a, a fishing boat that dated to the first century. Now, of course, as soon as they found that boat, the professional religionists in Israel said, Oh yeah, no doubt about it, that's Peter's boat. You know, there could have been a few other people who lived with Peter that had boats as well, and and, and I love Israel. I just love Israelites. I love Israel. I just love the whole thing, and I, I, I can't get there enough. I just enjoy it. You know, the one thing that is depressing, in a sense, about Israel, however, is everywhere you go, it seems like religion builds a shrine. And religion says, pay your shekels, and over here you can get some mystical religious experience. If you love the Bible, there's no better place than Israel. I mean the word of God just opens up right in front of your eyes it's Bible story after Bible event it's glorious but the one thing that's grievous is to see what religion has done you know it's kind of like this see this rock right here this rock is the, the rock of David's stub toe one day David stubbed his toe on that rock so if you put shekels in the box and if you pray to the stub toe rock of David you're gonna get lucky or you know over here you see this little plant we think Elijah sneezed on this plant so you you put your money and I always put the money in the box and, and then you do what religion says to do and you'll get a mystical experience you know we don't need a mystical experience we need to love our Bible we need to love our Lord and to love our Savior and and why as soon as they found that boat you can almost hear religion saying hey we got another money maker now I don't know if that was Peter's boat and I don't think anybody does know if it was Peter's boat I don't think you could know if it was Peter's boat but what that boat in the bottom of the the sea of Galilee did. It gave us a great picture as to what boats were like in the day. That particular one was about 26 feet long. It was 8 feet wide and it could go 5 feet into the water. It could carry a crew of 5 and either carry 10 passengers across the sea or it could carry a ton of cargo. Plenty of room for some fish to be caught. And so the Bible tells us they found the boat. And what do you know in verse number 3 it was Simon's. And Jesus prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. Isn't that marvelous? I mean, the truth of the matter is when Jesus showed up at the Sea of Galilee, that lake belonged to him. The water in that lake belonged to him. By the way, the boat that was on top of the water in that lake, the wood in that boat, it all belonged to him. Where everybody was sitting, the grass belonged to him. The whole thing belongs to him. Had the Lord Jesus come and commandeered Peter's boat and said, Peter, ah, you're going to let me use that boat. What choice does a human have? but ever the gentleman, ever the gracious gentleman, are these stunning words? I mean, usually we're praying to Jesus. On this occasion, Peter is being prayed to by Jesus. Anyways, he's requesting, he's saying, Peter, would you kindly allow me to use your boat that I might move out from the shore? No doubt with the rippling waves, Peter probably had to hold it still as well. Here's a fisherman who fished all night and he hadn't caught a thing. He is dead tired and he wants to just to go home. And now he's going to have to steady that boat while Jesus preaches to the multitude but you know there's something hidden here and that's the fact that Peter owed Jesus a favor Uh, Because in the chapter before, well, you know how it is in the Middle East. We get the idea of favors in America, but it's nothing quite like Israel or the Middle East. Why, in that part of the world, returning favor, it's your honor that's on the line. You know, to us, favors are, yeah, it's nice if you return a favor, but it's not a big deal if you don't. Oh, no, no, I, I think somebody in the Middle East must be keeping track. Because in the nations of the Middle East, if someone has done you a favor, you are bound by honor to return the favor and if they make a request of you you really don't have a choice and in chapter 4 we might say Jesus had done Peter a favor the Bible tells us that he healed his mother-in-law That could be all depending on how you define favor, come to think of it. you know, It may not be everybody's favor, and and it may not have been for Peter, but what are you going to do? So Peter's got to return the favor. After all, Jesus had come to his home and healed his mother-in-law. And now Jesus said, would you just let me use your boat for a bit? And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Brother Bachhaus, where do we go wrong on this? Now, this is Bible right here. This is how they did it in the Bible. In the word of God, the teacher sat down and the people sat there as Jesus sat. Why, are we, why do I have to stand up every night? Oh come on, I'm the guy who's got to wear out my shoes walking back and forth? Why don't you all stand up while Brother Bachhouse sits down on Sunday? Let's follow the Bible instead. But you know, that's how they did it back then. In the synagogue, it was called Moses' seat. And that's where the teacher would sit and he would address the people. And so the word of God tells us that in a lake that belonged to him, in a boat that was made by wood that belonged to him, the Lord Jesus, ever the gracious gentleman, has asked Peter if he could teach the people out of the boat. But in verse number four, we get to the crux of the chapter now. For the Bible says that when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, You know, we watch the multitudes pressing on each other to to be the first ones by the Sea of Galilee to hear the Son of God. And while the multitudes are there, the truth of the matter is, on this particular morning, Jesus is really preaching to only three people. Oh, no doubt his gracious words had something in them for everyone. Of course they did. But when it was all in said and done, the Lord wasn't interested in a big crowd. It was not a multitude of people that moved him. In America, we have an attitude that says if it's big, it must be right. But when you straight, uh, trace the multitudes in the book of Luke, they started out with massive crowds. And as long as there were free meals and free miracles and free messages, there was a big multitude. But when the meals and the miracles and the messages stopped, you know how small the crowd was? It got so small that Jesus said to the 12 disciples, "Uh, are you going to go away as well? And of course, Simon Peter, sometimes he got it right and sometimes he stuck his foot in his mouth. This was one occasion where he hit a grand slam. Lord, to whom shall we go? And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. The multitudes of thousands had been whittled down to 12. And Jesus said, "Will you go away. And Peter basically said, we're going to die for the one we love. And why even in that moment in time where you think, well, at least there's 12. Jesus had to shake his head and say, there's not even 12. I've chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil. No, Jesus was never worried about the size of the crowd. I I, I don't suppose they even counted. Jesus wasn't impressed because multitudes were there because he knew what was in the hearts of men. And he knew that while the outside could so easily be impressive, on the inside so often it was what is in it for me. And that morning by the Sea of Galilee, it was all about three men. So now he's done preaching, and in verse number four, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. In verse number four and a half, it says that all of Peter's co-workers started groaning out loud. Can you imagine These guys have fished all night long. Now they're coming in tired, worn out, beaten, and they hadn't caught a thing. I don't think there were too many nights where a professional business like this went out on the Sea of Galilee all night and came home with absolutely zero. And you can be certain they're in an awfully bad mood, and now, just after they get done docking the boats, now, after they have just finished washing the nets, of all things, Jesus tells them to launch out, and not just launch out, but to get those boats out of the docks, hook the nets back up, and launch out all the way into the deep water. Can you imagine what they must have thought? You know, you know to make this matter a little worse, is Jesus? He's Jesus of Nazareth. That would be Jesus of the hill country. We are talking about the crusty professional fishermen who spend their lives on the Sea of Galilee and and is the appropriate word here landlubber? I believe that might be it. This landlubber from the hills of Nazareth has just shown up and he's going to tell them how they're supposed to run their business. Everybody knows who knows anything. There are no fish to be caught during the day. The reason we go out there all night long is that's when the fish are active. During the day they come to the shore. They don't do anything. Anything, if anything, they may be found by a little stream coming down from one of the hills or mountains, but there are no fish to be caught. No professional fishermen would be caught dead, and the, in the morning hours launch out into the deep was preposterous. It was silly. There was no logical reason to do this, and everybody knows it. And now this landlubber is telling these professional fishermen how to do their job. You want know, this to be like this would be like somebody from the hills of Tennessee. Showing up in the state of Maine and finding some of those crusty old lobstermen, you know, that, 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 that know the business better than anybody out there in one of those ports in Maine where, where they, they tell us they speak English. I, I beg to differ. Nobody can understand what any of those guys are saying. They, they call them maniacs for a reason, you know. And this would be like somebody with a deep southern accent who's never spent a day in their life out on a boat showing up in some port little, little seacoast village in a place of Maine telling professional lobster men how they're supposed to do their job. You can be certain that those lobstermen have absolutely no desire to hear from somebody in the hills of Tennessee. And these fishermen of Capernaum, they have no heart to hear from somebody of Nazareth. Well, Peter's certainly in a rock and a hard place, isn't he? I mean, on one side, there's his buddies, his business partners. You can be certain that they are staring daggers at him. Uh, On the other side, here's the Lord Jesus saying, thank you, Peter, for letting me use your boat. Now, take your boats off the docks, hook up the nets, and launch out into the deep. And Peter's kind of stuck between them, isn't he? And in verse number five, Simon answering said unto him, uh, Master, I wonder if he didn't stop at that word and kind of emphasize it. Master, we have toiled all the night, nevertheless at thy word, nevertheless at thy word. I wonder if Peter really didn't emphasize that. You know, everybody's kind of staring at him and nobody wants to do this. And Peter's got the Lord Jesus, his Savior, saying, launch out into the deep. He really is going to make a choice, not just for himself. He's going to make a choice for the whole business, for everybody who just wants to go home and get some rest. And so Peter kind of probably emphasizes that word master because it really is a word. It's a word that means you are of higher rank than I am the word master in New Testament times it would be used of a word a a name for somebody who's higher in society than me it is what a student would call his teacher it is what a a, a member would call the rabbi in the synagogue it is what somebody in the military would use for an officer, it is how you would talk to a king, it was how you would talk to a a commander of a ship when he said master, the word master means you are the boss, you are of higher rank than I am, you are either more educated you are either more wealthy you are the more important but however it is used when peter says master he is saying i am beneath you Uh, you are above me and if you are ordering me to take out the boats then i really cannot say no so master we have toiled all night and have taken nothing nevertheless at thy word You can almost hear Peter looking at those buddies of his saying, it's his word. Nevertheless, at thy word, not my word, man. This isn't my idea. Don't blame me when this goes off the rails. I have no thing to say. I can't do anything but obey the master. He is more important than me. He is higher than me. So at thy word, we're going to hook the nets up. We're going to launch out into the deep and we're going to let them down. I wonder, I don't think I have to wonder, I'm pretty sure there was quite a little bit of attitude in those words. Well, you know the story in verse number six, when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. It was so great in verse number six, their net break. That's the first reason I know they never had a catch like this. So how do you know? Because had they had a catch like this, then they would have built bigger and better nets, wouldn't they? We are talking about a professional fisheries business. We're talking about at least two boats, probably more. We're talking about a system of very expensive nets. And now as they trace them to the deep waters of the Sea of Galilee, the catch of fish, is so great the nets are gonna break these profession this is not somebody going to Walmart and picking up a little fishing net and dipping it in the pond this is a professional business and it is such a catch that is so profound they have never had one like this the Bible tells us the nets are gonna break and notice in verse 7 what a great word they beckoned unto their partners notice it doesn't say they called unto their partners the word beckon means they started giving them some sign language you know they don't want to let anybody because you know what they're thinking Somewhere out in the deep parts of the Sea of Galilee, Peter all of a sudden has just hit, could I use this word, the jackpot. Peter just says wait a minute nobody else there must be an underground spring here there is something Jesus knows about this lake that nobody else knows about this lake you think and now Peter's thinking I have it made for the rest of my life I know where the fish are and only that we don't even have to go fishing all night we can get some real sleep and why we can get a job where we work 9 to 5 Peter's got to be thinking this is the greatest day of my life I know where the spot is so he's not going to start hollering and telling anybody but he's going to give his business partners some sign language so he doesn't yell to them or call to them he's beckoning to them you know right here right here he's whatever the sign language was Peter's getting the message out get the rest of the boats hook up the nets and get out here and what do you know the Bible tells us he beckoned unto the partners which were in the other ship that they should come and help them and they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink really so once again we're reminded they never had a catch like this Because if they had had a catch like this, then they would have built bigger nets. They would have built bigger boats. Why, the catch was so great. These professional boats by these professional fishermen were so loaded down, they were going to sink. It was an extraordinary catch at an extraordinary time of the day. And it all tells us that Peter's got to be thinking, I am on easy street. I have just hit the jackpot. I know where to go. I know when to go. I know what to do. It is the greatest moment for this businessman and his business his life and that's what brings us to verse number eight for when simon peter saw it he fell down at jesus knees saying depart from me for i am a sinful man O lord a little bit earlier jesus was master you are higher than me more important than me greater than me smarter than me you are the boss you are the ruler you are great But now it is not Jesus being his master. Jesus is now his Lord. That name Lord can go one of two ways. In New Testament times, the word Lord could be used like you and I in America use the word sir. It's a word of respect. It was a common word, Lord. You would use it to show respect to to anyone. The word Lord, of course, could mean sir, but it could also mean you are the king and the ruler of my life. So Peter is either saying, sir, with great respect, or Peter is saying, now you are the ruler and the king over my life. Which one is he saying? Well, the answer is very easy. Because the Bible says in verse 8, before he spoke these words, he fell down at Jesus' knees. For an Israelite living in the Old Testament, the number one commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Right along with that, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Right along with that, thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. It was the chief command to stay away from idols, to stay away from false religion. An Israelite would never bow his knee to anyone save for the God of Israel jehovah god when the bible tells us that peter bowed his knee he is not saying you are worthy of respect he is not simply saying you are worthy of honor he is saying you are now the one who is the king the ruler of my life i am doing what you do not do unless you are in the presence of god i am bowing my knee to my savior that morning peter comes in from a long night of nothing He comes to the shore, and there is Jesus Christ, ready to preach to the multitudes. When Peter came in that morning, he had a Savior in his life. We know that from John 1. When Peter came in that morning, he had a Master in his life, someone he recognized as greater than me, more powerful than me, more important than me, higher than me. But now in verse number 8, all of that is left behind, because when he bows his knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying, you are not just greater than me, you are not just more powerful than me me and it's not just that you are the one who has saved me now he looks and says you are the one who is going to rule every day for the rest of my life you are not just my master you are my lord and my king so what does it mean to say that jesus is lord You know, that's kind of a a very popular slogan, isn't it not? In churches across the land, people wear T-shirts. It will be nothing this week for people to gather. Well, they probably won't, but they'll online or do something in a house of religion. Thousands of people, they'll sway back and forth, put their hands in the air, and they will sing that Jesus is Lord. And it's awfully easy to say that Jesus is Lord. It is awfully easy to sing that Jesus is Lord. But you know what Jesus said in Luke? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? See, we can sing, he is Lord. We can preach, he is Lord. We can say, he is Lord. But Jesus didn't say, if you love me, sing a song. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you know, wear a t-shirt. Jesus say, if you love me, write a post and blog or Twitter or whatever they write. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And while it's awfully easy to take 20 minutes out of the week and and carve out a little time where we get a dose of religion and and we play the game that tells everyone Jesus is Lord. If he is really Lord, then we are going to keep his commandments and bow our knee before him. Is he just the Lord of our tongue? Is he just the Lord of a t-shirt? Is he just the Lord of a bumper sticker? Is he just the Lord of a Facebook post? Or is Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives? See, we would all say, oh yes, Jesus is Lord. Oh yes, he is my Lord. But wait, 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 wait. Because while it's easy to say that, it's easy to sing that. In Luke chapter number 5, the Bible tells us that for Simon Peter, for Jesus to go from being his master to his Lord, uh, it was going to require some choices. We call it discipleship. No, no, Peter's not just going to sing a song now. He's not just going to make a statement. What is happening in Luke chapter 5 is an event that is going to literally affect every single day for the rest of his life. Peter is not going to be the same. Because Jesus can just be the Lord of a quote or the Lord of a chorus. But if he is the Lord of our life, this is very different. So while it's easy for you to say it, it's easy for me to preach it, it's easy for us to sing it. Before Jesus is Lord, there's four choices Peter had to make and we have to make. Here's the first one. To make Jesus Lord, it meant that Peter said, I am going to live according to his word. You see that in verse number five. Simon answering said unto him, Mester, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Why are you letting down the net? Why are you doing this? Why are you going to do what you do for the rest of your life? And Peter said, one reason, at thy word. I am now going to live my life at thy word. I am going to live my life according to the word of my Savior. If Jesus Christ is my Lord, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, that means that we are living our lives according to the Bible. Now, when somebody sings on Sunday, Jesus is Lord, and then they go home at noon and they put the Bible up in the bookcase and it stays there till next Sunday, who are we trying to fool? Jesus Christ is not Lord. If Jesus Christ is Lord, it means I study my Bible, love my Bible, read my Bible, know my Bible. It means that I am building my life, my business, my marriage. It means I'm building absolutely everything I have on what the Bible says. If I am not living according to God's word, it doesn't matter how many choruses I sing. It doesn't matter how many t-shirts I wear. Jesus is not the Lord of my life unless my life is being built on the word of God. At thy word. And the world's going to tell me what I'm doing right now, Peter would say is silly. There are a lot of things the world looks at for the child of God, and why do we think it shouldn't be so? The Word of God tells us the world is supposed to look at Riverview Baptist Church and think it's strange the way y'all live your life. Hey, you don't go to the wild parties that we do. Y'all, strange. You don't use the language that we use. What's wrong with you people? Uh, uh, You don't like the things we like. You don't have the, what's wrong with you people? You know, the Bible says the world's supposed to think it's strange that we don't run and do what they do. Of course not. Because when Jesus Christ is the Lord and the ruler of our lives, we are going to build our homes, our hearts, our habits upon what the Bible says. At thy word, at thy word, at thy word, I build my business. At thy word, I go to church. At thy word, I serve the Lord. At thy word, I run a marriage. At thy word, we build a family. At thy word, at thy word, when someone has Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life, they are living a life that is in line with the Bible So if the Bible is sitting upon the shelf, Jesus is not Lord, no matter what we think. Number one, Peter has to make the choice, I will live my life according to thy word. But notice, if Jesus Christ is Lord, number two, it means that he is worth more than earthly treasure. Remember verse number six? When they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes in their net break. How about verse number 9? He was astonished and all that were with him at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. I'm going to take a guess that for an old fisherman like Peter and his buddies, it took a lot for them to be shocked and astonished. I don't think there were too many things they hadn't already seen out on the Sea of Galilee. And you know a night where the storms came up? How many nights you think their lives must have been in danger? I don't think there are too many things that are going to surprise or stun some fishermen like these gentlemen and yet the Bible says they were absolutely shocked at what they had seen that day oh it was the greatest day of their lives Did you realize what happens see we've got this attitude that in America uh, well Jesus is here to fix all the broken people Jesus comes along he's just gonna take care of all the problems now wait a minute I am thankful that the most broken sinner in Seymour, Wisconsin, can have an appointment with Calvary and their life can be changed, they can be saved and the Lord can do marvelous works. But in this room tonight there are people who have been saved by the grace of God. There are young people that have a future in front of them and somehow we have come to the place where we think that we can do it our way, live our way, make a mess of things and after I have made a mess out of my life, then you know like Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall when the king's horses and the king's men can't put them back together. Well, Jesus can come and fix me now don't misunderstand the town drunk don't misunderstand the town drug addict don't misunderstand the vilest of sinners in this county can get saved by the grace of god but in this building tonight there are people to whom much is given much shall be required And God does not expect you to throw your life away, to ruin your life with immorality, to ruin your life with wickedness, and after you have made a mess of your life, then to turn it all over to Jesus and expect him to fix it. He is expecting tonight that you are going to offer him a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable unto God. And tonight we have this idea that, well, Jesus, all he does is fix broken pieces. He's good at that. He's great at that. But you know what he's even better at? Keeping the pieces from breaking in the first place. And when Jesus Christ is Lord, do you realize what's just happened here? The Lord didn't come to Peter and say, okay, Peter, you know what? I I put your ships in a storm and they got wrecked. They're in the bottom of the Dead Sea. So in 1950 years, they can find them and make money. That's not what Jesus did. And Jesus didn't bankrupt him, and Jesus didn't ruin him. I love this. Jesus come and said, Peter, I'm going to give you the very best day of your life. Literally, Peter, I'm going to give you a spot on the Sea of Galilee that will make you the Bill Gates of your day. So, Peter, you've got to make a choice now. It is not, Peter, your life is broken and ruined and wrecked, so there's nothing else to do but to turn it over to Jesus. That's not the deal. Jesus comes and says, Peter, you got one choice where you can be a multimillionaire, so to speak. You can have the best fishing business that anybody's ever had. You can have it all, or you can have the will of God. Jesus is certainly not making it easy, is he? It was not Peter's worst day when Jesus said, I have an alternative to this business. It was on the very best day of his entire life where he has to decide. Because when Jesus is Lord, he's more important than silver and gold. When Jesus is Lord, he's more important than all the stuff of the world. You know the Bible word is mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. Modern seminary professors have corrupted modern Bibles. They have taken that word mammon and they have changed it to money. But money and mammon are not the same thing. Now, indeed, money is part of mammon, but mammon's a lot bigger than money. When the Bible says you cannot serve God and mammon, it means you cannot serve God and, well, maybe the best word is stuff. No, you got to decide, do I want Jesus or my money? Do I want Jesus or my pleasures? Do I want Jesus or my hobbies? Is it Jesus first or is it me first? Something gets the priority. Something gets to be the Lord. And if there is something or someone or some habit or some hobby, if there is something in my life that's going to take more time, it's going to demand more attention, it's going to take more of me than my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can fool ourselves with all of our courses and all of our t-shirts and all of our sermons but it's all vain, empty words. Jesus is not Lord until he is more important to me than anything this world's got. You see it tonight. Peter's got some choices to make. No, 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 wait a minute here. If you're going to get on your knee and you're going to make me the Lord and the king of your life, what that means, sir, is you're going to live your life at my words. Are you willing to follow the Bible? If not, then don't sing the song. No, no, wait a minute here. If I'm going to be the Lord and the king of your life, that means that more than earthly treasure, Peter, on the very best day of your life, you've got to decide, do I want to live for money and fish or do I want to live for Jesus and his will?
0: It's not an easy
1: choice. But notice there's a third one. The Bible tells us Peter's got to decide, do I choose to build my life on the Bible? Do I choose to love him more than my stuff? But number three, he has to see his own unworthiness. In verse number eight, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And you know, he had the reaction people always have when they see the great Son of God. He didn't say, you know, Lord, I really got something to offer you. (laughs) He said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What do we have to offer the Son of God? I, I, I think that some people think, you know, this is a nice negotiation here. And, Lord, there's some good things that I can give you. Is there anybody here tonight who, honestly, do we really think that we've got enough money in the bank that Jesus needs us? You know, Brother Bachhaus and I are preachers, and we just give our life to study the Bible and to preach the word. Do you, you think the Lord needs me? You think the Lord needs your preacher? Honestly, you you say, well, yeah, people giving your life. You could be doing something else. What is that? What else is there? I, I mean, do you think that the Lord really, really needs me? Do you think he couldn't find a whole lot more people, better looking, more talented, and the rest of things? He doesn't need me. And and you know, when Isaiah got a glimpse of the holiness of God, and then the Bible says the house was filled with smoke and the doorposts moved. In other words, God said, excuse me, Isaiah, you cannot even look at me. And when the doorposts are moving, God is saying, you can't even come to me in your present state. By the time it was all said and done and God cleansed him, he heard the voice of the Lord, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I, I think Isaiah must start to look around. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking? God wants somebody to serve him. Who's he talking to? And, and all of a sudden, this dirty, wicked Isaiah realizes, wait a minute. He is talking to me. You mean you are willing to use me? You mean you are willing to scoop so low into the sewage of this world and dredge up me? And you're willing to use a nothing, nobody like me? I, I think Isaiah's looking around. Whom shall I send? Who will go, oh, wait a minute. Hey, ring in the doorbell. Here am I. Send me. You don't have to ask twice. You're not going to have to beg. Take me, you're not going to have to sing a long invitation tonight. Here am I, here am I, Isaiah says, send me. Now Peter falls on his face and he's not entering in a negotiation. It bothers me greatly when Christian organizations think they've got to have big contracts for people to sign. There's no contract here. Nope, he's just saying, my life is yours. That's the end of the game. Anywhere, anything, anyhow, Peter says, I am the unworthy man. I am the nothing. I have nothing to offer, and you are my all and in all. There is no deal. There is no negotiation. Here is Simon Peter realizing his own unworthiness. And that's what happens when Jesus is the Lord. Number one, we say, the word of God becomes the book of my life. I live my life at thy word. Number two, we decide that I'd rather have Jesus than fish, silver, gold, business. I'd rather have him more than pleasures and hobbies. Jesus is the king of it all. And now, number three, when Jesus is Lord, we look at ourselves and we see an incredibly unworthy person. Then, number four, one more choice to make. And the Bible tells us, so was also James, verse number 10, and John, the sons of Zebedee. And notice the word, which were partners with him. We saw that word in verse 7. Yet there's a nuance here, because the word partner in verse number 7 is a compound word that means business partners. The word partner in verse number 10 is a different kind of partner, a fellowship partner. There are not many people that want to make these choices. So it's Peter, it's James and John, the fellowship partners with Simon. And notice what Jesus did. He said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. You know what he said? From here on out, Peter, I'm going to tell you what to do with your life. Oh, for Peter, that meant instead of fishing for fish, he's going to fish for people. For Peter, well, we could turn to John 21. You could read it later tonight, where Jesus said, Well, Peter, you're not only going to live for me, one day you're going to die for me. Uh, Peter, you're going to be crucified for me. You're going to live for me. You're... It means that Jesus gets to tell me what to do, where to go, what to do, how to live. He gets to tell me what my business is going to be. When somebody makes Jesus the Lord of their life, they are saying, Jesus, I want you to rule my life. My life is nothing except to be lived for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. He gets to tell Tell me how high to jump, so to speak. He gets to tell me where to go, what to do. He gets to run every detail, every detail of the rest of my life. It's called surrendering ourselves for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And, and most people are not interested in that. I talk to young people all the time, camps and churches. And, and you know, what are you going to do with your life? Well, you know, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go here and then I'm going to do this. And I got this plan, and I'm going to be this. And I'm going to get that. And, 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 you know, once a year, I might hear somebody say, I'm going to do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. Whatever the Lord wants me to do. See, when Jesus is the Lord, this is not to look good for 20 minutes in a Sunday morning service, swaying back and forth with our hands in the air, singing, He is Lord, He is Lord. That's not what we're talking about here. And this is not a t-shirt. It's not a bumper sticker or a sweatshirt. It's not about writing on Twitter or an Instagram. It's not. No. No, this is the rest of our life. Saying, I want Jesus more than anything this world has to offer. I am willing to live my life according to the word of God. And from here on out, whatever Jesus wants me to do, he gets to run my life. Do you understand now why Jesus looked at this crowd of people saying, why do you call me Lord? and do not the things that I say. You know, we kind of can watch the multitudes in the book of Luke, and you just can see them filtering away. Because one day the free miracles stopped, and one day the free meals stopped, and and the multitude started bailing out on every side. This is not what they had in mind. And by the time it was all said and done, there's just a handful of people left. It's easy to say he is Lord... And it's easy to sing, he is Lord. But if Jesus is my Lord, I am living my life by the Bible. If Jesus is my Lord, I'd rather have him than anything. If Jesus is Lord, this is not a negotiation or a contract. I am a nothing and he is everything. And if Jesus is Lord, he gets to tell me what to do every day for the rest of my life till I die. That's what it means when Jesus is Lord. Not too long ago, I read a book I had read many years ago. It's a good one to read again called Tortured for Christ. The story of Richard Wombrand, a powerful pastor in the land of Romania in the days of the communist authorities. He said when the communists took over Romania, they convened a convention of all the religions, of all the ministers, thousands of them had come to the parliament building. He said there were 4,000 priests and pastors and ministers of every denomination imaginable, and they had all come for one purpose, to install Joseph Stalin as the honorary president of the religious Congress of Romania what hypocrisy in the last century we would all know Adolf Hitler as being a, a horrific murderer Joseph Stalin oh, he had nothing on him Joseph Stalin had even a higher number of blood, the blood of sinner souls dripping from his hands. He was incredibly murderous, incredibly wicked man, high in coldness. He just slaughtered so many Christians, so many believers, so many political opponents. Joseph Stalin was a demon-possessed wicked man who, as a young man, sat in a seminary class and thought about preaching. Now in Romania, this wicked, godless murderer, this evil man was being installed as the de facto religious ruler and leader in Romania. Mr. Wombrand said one by one, ministers stood up and praised Joseph Stalin. They said communism and Christianity can coexist. They are all the same. And for hours, they just exalted and praised this evil man. Until finally, the wife of Richard Wumbrand couldn't take it anymore. Her name was Sabina she leaned over and elbowed her husband and she said these words, Richard, you stand up and wipe away this shame from the face of Christ. These ministers are spitting in his face. Richard Wombrandt looked at his wife and said, If I do this, you will lose your husband. She leaned back and said, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. Well, and my wife's not here tonight. <laughs> what can I tell you? Richard Rembrandt knew exactly what it meant. He stood to his feet. And he began to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He began to lift up the Son of God and praise him and cried out and said communism and Christianity are not the same. They cannot coexist. They are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. He knew precisely what it meant. He would spend 14 years in a Romanian jail. Three of those years he would be in solitary confinement. That would be a cell 12 feet underground with no lights or no windows. He described how he was frequently beaten and tortured and mutilated. they burned his flesh on other occasions they would lock him in an ice box they beat the soles of his feet until the flesh was gone and he summed it up in his biography with these words there were no words to describe the pain see if Jesus is the Lord he gets to tell us what to do where to go tells us how high to jump he takes care of it all our job is to save my life for the will of God Our job is to say, along with Peter, what wilt thou have me to do? It's what it means to have Jesus as Lord. So why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? This is not about slogans and t-shirts. This is not about cute little things. This is about a child of God saying, the one who died for me to save me from hell, he gets to be the ruler and the king of my life. There are choices to make if Jesus...